folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of The Art, The Secret History of Cywar, Conspiratainment, and the Shattering of Reality, Book One. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visubview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, .blogspot.com. And procure a copy of that book and my other works at the Farm's official store, which is at The Farm Podcast, all one word, the farmpodcast.store. And please consider signing up for The Farm's Patreon. On the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. The upper tier, you get that in addition to access to the farm's monthly Zoom party meetings, my dispatches from my various journeys across the United States and all the weird hotspots that I hit up, State of the Unions, where you get my musings on the geopolitical state of the world, and so much more. It's a lot of content, folks, so please consider checking that out. Okay, today's guest is a repeater on the farm and a heavyweight one at that. He is the curator of The Weird Part, a blog and podcast dedicated to 14 and paranormal phenomena, weird crime, and all kinds of odd beliefs. Folks, I give you guys the great Vincent Treewell. Vincent, thank you so much for dropping by again today, sir. Happy to be here, Stephen. Um, no place I'd rather be than on the farm. Talking <laughs> to you. Fantastic. <laughs> Especially about this topic, yes. Oh, yeah, it's going to be a fun one. So I figured I had done my last round of Kubrick's musings here, or this is going to be my last round, rather, of Kubrick musings before I shut up and start working on a book about him. To wit, a subject for this outing is one of the director's most popular and quoted films, Full Metal Jacket. And Vincent here is in a position to offer up some unique insights. Not only was he a Marine, but he was active in the Corps around the time the film came out. This gives him a very unique perspective on Jacket, both in regards to its accuracy and the impact that it had on the Marine Corps, an aspect of the movie that's not really discussed very much. Combine that with all of the research I've done into Kubrick, and I believe we've got the right formula to explore one of the director's most curious outings. What I mean by that is, Full Metal Jacket, is it truly an anti-war film? And if not, what is the broader ideology behind it? And on that note, let us start the show So first off, Vincent, let's get into your time in the core. You've described boot camp as a kind of initiation experience to me. Can you unpack that force and how it relates to ancient traditions like the curios from the steeps to the Greco-Roman culture? Yes. Um, boot camp, particularly as portrayed in this movie, and I went in in 1989, so I can't, you know, that's the time period I can speak from. I can't tell you what they're doing today. I that was like 30 years ago, but um, this depiction is incredibly accurate. And I spent the first 10, I rewatched it this morning and I spent the first 10 minutes laughing frequently at the catchphrases because 
that is just so dead on for my experience. Um, it was with somewhat, but not that much less, somewhat fewer racial slurs. That is exactly what happened. And there is an initiation process. Um, it starts with a young man coming in. And when I say young, he, there's nobody joins Marine Corps at 30. Now, that's not literally true. Some people do. But they really want to get young guys right out of high school. And it's because they're malleable. And much like the traditional societies you referenced, but other ones too, you know, Native American societies, really all around the world, traditional cultures have had a boy to man initiation where you become a warrior. And that's what happens here. And the young guys go in and they're put through greatly difficult challenges. And when they come out the other end, they are both men and they are warriors. And this is a little complex, but the way I see it, um, a lot of people misunderstand the relationship between the Vincent uh, Dionifro, um mangling his name, but the guy who's constantly referred to as Pyle but who his name was not Pyle. It was um, Leonard Lawrence and Gunnery Sergeant Hartman. People think that Hartman doesn't want Pyle to make it and that he's trying to get rid of him. And this is only briefly touched on in the twist ending of the boot camp portion that if he wanted to get rid of him, if he really believed he shouldn't be a Marine, he just had to fill out some paperwork and they would have section aided him and sent him home. He Hartman spells out his mission in the first opening scene where he says, my mission is to weed out the non-hackers. And that's, he wants Pyle to make it. And he does all sorts of things that I am not endorsing, but from his point of view, he doesn't hate Pyle. He's trying to help Pyle. Now, he physically hits him, he publicly humiliates him, he uses group punishment to get other people to gang up on him. He does a lot of things that look really bad, but his intention is to toughen Pile up and make him a Marine. And he does that. And that is, in some ways, Hartman is a shaman. Okay, and I know that might sound weird, but that was what the shaman would do in the traditional societies. Guide the young men and put them through some very difficult things. Um, really break them down and build them back up and change their nature from being like a more naive young man to being a warrior who is hardened and whether, I'm not saying Hartman's right, but without a doubt, he believes he's helping Pyle. And I don't think people really see that. He's not just torturing him for some weird, like, enjoyment. He is literally trying to help him. And that is what the shaman did. 
And he, at some point, and it, people don't always remember these scenes, but he can he is congratulatory to Pyle when Pyle is shooting and being very accurate and has mastered the rifle. Um, and at the end, it's a very moving scene, at least to me, where Hartman has gathered all of the recruits and tells them, today you are no longer maggots, today you are Marines, and starts giving out their assignments. And he tells Pyle, congratulations, you made it. And that is the initiation journey. He's a different person than when he came. They all are different people than when they came in. And that's kind of the core C-O-R-E um, takeaway from, from when I say that. It is very much an initiatory journey that is rare in our society, um, rare in any modern society, but was almost omnipresent in you know, traditional, more tribal societies, that the young men would be taken away, put through greatly difficult challenges, some involving real danger. And those that survived were then recognized as men and warriors. So that's kind of where I was going with that. No, that's very well said. Um, you know, it kind of does invoke the whole notion of the trials of terror, so to speak, that were often a uh, staple of um, indigenous cultures in various uh, parts of the world. Also, to uh, to apply a certain amount of um, psychoanalysis to it, you could see the whole sequence of the boot camp is depicting how the uh, recruits or initiates, if you prefer, go through a process of having their personalities deconstructed and then reconstructed by Hartman throughout the course of basic training. And that is a very interesting perspective on Hartman because um, it's even kind of interesting as well in terms of just the name that they use for the character, Hartman. Yes. Uh -huh. I mean, he's trying to instill the heart of a Marine into these recruits. Um, but it's also fascinating because from his perspective, I believe that he sees himself as equipping them with the knowledge and skills that they will need to survive combat and come back alive. So in this sense, I mean, he very much, I think, would view himself as a righteous character in that he is trying to um, give the Marines the proper skill sets that they need to come out of the experiences that they're going to go through alive. So in a sense, he almost probably views himself as a kind of savior figure, if you will. Oh, absolutely. Whether what he's doing is right or not, he believes it's right, 100%. Um, in the novel that this was based on, the short timers, uh, 1979 semi-autobiographical story by Gustav Hesfor. Um, the twist ending of the boot camp part involves the gunnery sergeant telling the troubled recruit after he's shot him, I don't think I'm giving any spoiler alerts on a way, a movie from 1987. Um, it does end up with Pyle losing it and shooting Hartman. And in the book, the drill instructor says, I'm proud of you before he dies, which is a bizarre, it sounds bizarre, but he has succeeded in making him a warrior. Um, it's, it was very interesting to me.
Yeah, before we get too deep into this, uh, what is the cultural references behind Gomer Pyle, uh, USMC, by the way? Oh, yes, that's interesting. Um, Gomer Pyle, USMC, was... Um, give me just one second. I have to take care of a loud noise. Okay, never mind. I'm great. Yes, Gomer Pyle, USMC, was a spinoff from The Andy Griffith Show. Um Gomer Pyle was played by Jim Neighbors, and there was uh, Gunnery Sergeant Carter, who was played by Frank Sutton. And Gomer was a character on Andy Griffith from 1962 to 1964. And then Gomer Pyle USMC became a show in 1964 and ran until 1969. So it would be running during this period of time. It would have been a very cultural reference um if anybody's interested they still show gomer pile usmc on the me tv channel um so it's, it's still being shown today um gomer pile usmc is a very sanitized disneyfied version of life in the marine corps in the 60s um nobody's going to vietnam there uh Sergeant Carter gets mad, but like he, he never hits Pyle. He doesn't, he's mostly just, you know, always blowing his top. And Jim Neighbors plays Gomer Pyle as a well-meaning but bumbling um, first recruit and then Marine. And this was, you know, I think very much PR for the government, for the war, and to put the message out that it's not so bad being in the Marine Corps. You, you should consider joining or at least accept your draft notice. Um, it was very soft soaping what life was actually like in the Corps in the 60s. And it would be a reference that is totally something people would say at that time that, you know, everybody knew who Gomer Pyle was. Well, step back briefly for a second. Let's consider some of the backdrop into which the film was released and before we wrap up here with the boot camp sequence. But what was the geopolitical situation like in the U.S. Uh, around 1987 when Full Metal Jacket dropped? That's one of the most fascinating things to me is and why I've questioned, is this really an anti-war movie? Um, this was the height of the Reagan era buildup of the military. Um, drastically increasing the Pentagon budget, drastically increasing our presence overseas, um, engaging in military activities in Lebanon and Grenada and bombing um, Tripoli and just taking a generally much more aggressive stance and ramping up the American military machine. And this came at a time, you know, when that was going on. And this comes out one year after um, Top Gun, which is a pretty unapologetic, uh, basically recruiting film for, you know, the Navy uh, flight program and, you know, the, the Air Force. And, you know, it's cool to be a pilot. And, you know, Tom Cruise is kicking ass. And, you know, it, it comes out a year after that. And... I've got to tell you, everybody 
who was in the core at that time, loved that movie. Love, I don't mean Top Gun, I mean Full Metal Jacket. Um, or I, just to give a personal story, my father did not want me to join the core. And he actually rented the VHS um, of Full Metal Jacket when I was 17 and said, sit down, watch this and see if you still want to do that with your life. And I have to say, as a teenager, I was like, hell yeah, that's exactly what I want to. <laughs> and everybody that I was in with, virtually everybody felt the same way. The movie was just playing on repeat all the time. And that caused me to question, as I sit here and watch it as a man in his 50s, I see a lot of nuance that I certainly didn't see when I was just getting out of high school. And it, it makes me question what's the target audience and what's he really saying? Yeah, it's interesting in context of a lot of the films that were coming out during this era, because this was also uh, the point where Vietnam had really become a major trope in the action genre. Of course, this is kind of the heyday of Rambo, what First Blood Part Two came out, I think, in 1986, if I'm not mistaken. I think that sounds right, yeah. And uh, also, I believe the animal mother character in Full Metal Jacket, who's played by Adam Baldwin, not Alec, but Adam was sort of a parody, if you will, of the Rambo character. Uh, it was definitely sort of meant to be the stand-in for this, uh, you know, kind of unstoppable Vietnam soldier uh, in the bush kind of thing that had been so popularized by the Rambo movies and Mission oh, yes. and that kind of thing. So it was fascinating with that. Of course, Kubrick... Chuck Norris made a career out of, you know, Vietnam movies um there was just it was, yes vietnam was a huge thing in the popular culture of that time um the a-team on tv um, oh yeah yeah i mean so much was there was a there was a, a narrative that we didn't really lose the war the politicians lost the war and we need to build up our military and be strong again and that was you know promoted in a lot of different um films and tv shows so it's definitely something to keep in mind as well with the cultural references here that would have been familiar to audiences in the 1980s when they were watching this movie as well for the first time and also too it's worth mentioning the kind of rivalry i guess this project had with oliver stone's platoon of course kubrick had started full metal jacket prior to uh, platoon beginning filming if i'm not mistaken and it was at the time if it had come out before platoon it would have been i think more culturally significant in the sense that uh, there really hadn't been uh, a serious vietnam movie arguably done since apocalypse now or maybe the deer hunter if you would throw that in there um but since that kind of era there, like the very late 70s, maybe like right around 1980, you started to see the rise from there on out of a lot of this, you know, kind of pro-war jingoism, as Vincent is alluding to here in a lot of the action films. So it was an opportunity for Kubrick to come out with a Vietnam film that would offer up a more serious take, if you will, on the subject. But being Kubrick, uh, the production of the movie dragged on for so long 
that Platoon ended up making it to the theaters before Full Metal Jacket. So that probably took some of the wind out of this particular film's sales and was one of the reasons why it didn't become as big of a box office hit upon its initial release as it may well have. I mean, to be honest, in 2023, at least as we're recording this, I think it's probably the most popular Vietnam film from that era now. Uh, I mean, Platoon is still fairly celebrated, but I think most Americans at this point are probably more familiar with Full Metal Jacket and certainly other things of that nature, like what Hamburger Hill or some of the other films that kind of came out in the wake of Platoon. So there's definitely a lot of that kind of cultural resonance to keep in mind as we're discussing this as well. Yes. Um, now, Platoon was also very popular when I was in, but Platoon to me is a much more sincere or at least visibly direct anti-war movie. I believe Oliver Stone really, who had been in Vietnam, um, was, he's not hard to read that he says, look, war is terrible. It does terrible things to soldiers. It does terrible things to the people that live in the country. It's bad. Kubrick is, as always, much more enigmatic. And it's a very different film. And I think it's important to keep in mind, too, because I, and when I look at Full Metal Jacket, I do see Kubrick commenting a lot on culture, pop culture uh, specifically. I mean, one of the things about the movie that really jumped out to me when I recently rewatched it is how much the recruits really from the beginning and certainly continuing into Vietnam when they become soldiers are really basing their actions upon popular perception of military life and pop culture. That's why I think the Gomer Pyle USMC thing is so crucial, but it's, it's not just that. I mean, obviously with the Matthew Modine character, Joker, he's prone to doing those curious john wayne impersonations for instance yes, yes practically indeed. the beginning of the movie so certainly you can see how these guys are struggling with a lot of the cultural touchstones presenting war the sort of john wayne characteristic that would have dominated in the 1960s and how that informs their perspective of being soldiers it's really quite fascinating and Again, you really, it's just really blatant when they get into the sort of uh, celebrated sequence in Vietnam where they're being filmed by that film crew and yes. you know, it's just kind of moving along the line of soldiers and they all have like their little witty one-liners that they're offering up. And just in general, if you ever look at how some of the actors are behaving, which was surely deliberately when they realize that they're being filmed by Stars and Stripes or one of the other publications, it's, yeah, they're very self-aware of the camera being present and the fact that they are in their minds at least playing a kind of role for the cameras oh absolutely um one thing i was kind of speaking of what would be cultural touchstones from that time and you know maybe a you know a nuanced meaning just the term joker um remind and sometimes it's even referred to as the joker and it seems like a Batman reference. Um, now, I don't know if that had any intention at all, but most things Kubrick touches have very little happens by accident. And his transformation from this 
you know, sarcastic, uh, wise-ass guy to, you know, at the end, he is a stone-cold killer. Um, in fact, he's named Joker is not lost on me. And Batman had been around since the 40s, so, I mean, people would know that, too, you know? Oh, yeah. No, I think that that was intentional as well. And also, to, uh, another cultural touchstone, too, from the 60s that that would have surely been referenced to was the Batman and Robin TV series, which was quite popular in the mid-1960s. So Yes, indeed. It's almost certain that the Joker character was partly adopting or maybe potentially even had that name given to him by Hartman because of that cultural reference. Certainly it would be in keeping with the Gomer Pyle, uh, Pyle moniker that Lawrence gets. Yes. So it's kind of another thing there, how Hartman is basically <laughs> giving a lot of these guys uh, nicknames that could be taken from television almost in this sort of stereotypical sense of heroism and villainy in the american culture at the time yes well to get back to the film here proper uh do you have any additional thoughts on the role that arlie emery had in it and kubrick's decision to largely allow him to make up his role on set oh yes that is a fascinating thing um and i mean arlie Ermey actually was in the Marines uh, for, well, he medically, he went on medical disability after, I believe, 16 years. Um, he had been a drill instructor and was also a Vietnam vet. Um, so he was very much experienced in what he was talking about. I just want to, I actually did a little research on this myself. Um, let me just grab this because he was treated differently by uh, Kubrick than I would hazard to say anybody else ever. Okay. Um, Kubrick, you know, was notoriously very much what we might call a control freak that he would put actors through a lot and, you know, require endless takes and they weren't running the show. He was totally running the show, but Arlie Ermey really impressed Kubrick to the point that he got a different treatment than anyone else. He was not put through the 80 takes walking through a door type of thing. He was allowed to write a lot of his own dialogue. He was allowed to improvise without, and go off script, which was something Kubrick, Kubrick didn't really allow anybody else. He had started as a technical coordinator and consultant on, you know, we want you to teach this actor how to be a drill instructor. And Kubrick became fascinated with how well he performed because he was doing something he'd actually done. And he would give him more, much more of a voice in, you know, the creative control than any other actor that, I think he probably ever worked with. And that was extremely unusual. Kubrick grew fascinated. This is, and I'll be honest, it's Wikipedia, Wikipedia, but it is sourced. And, uh, you know, I did look it up here. Kubrick grew fascinated with Ermi's performances, which sometimes ran to two hours, the maximum time that could be recorded on VHS cassettes. 
director later said to Rolling Stone that Ermey's intense familiarity with the role had perfected his delivery and fluency of improvisation to a level he could not hope to discover in a professional actor, no matter how many, no matter how many takes they were given. Colcieri was replaced by Ermey before filming. In compensation for months in preparation for the role of Hartman, Colcieri was given the smaller role of a helicopter door gunner. Yeah, we could discuss that too. Um, seeking authenticity for the war movie, Kubrick allowed Ermey to write, edit, and improvise his own dialogue. His was the only performance in a Kubrick, Kubrick film that had a significant proportion of improvised dialogue, with Ermey writing more than 50% of his dialogue. Kubrick later praised Ermey as an excellent performer. During the technical demands of Ermey's extended dialogue scenes, his character has by far the most lines in the film. The actor sometimes satisfied Kubrick after only three takes because he's prepared. This is extremely usual, unusual on a Kubrick production where the director would regularly demand 40 takes and in some circumstances considerably more due to actors focusing more on remembering their lines and delivering believable emotions. Ermey's performance was extremely well received. He was nominated for a Golden Globe Award as Best Supporting Actor. So yeah, he got treatment from Stanley Kubrick that nobody else ever got. And that's because he just owned this role. He was that. And I find that pretty fascinating. In addition to also the numerous takes that Kubrick did of scenes, he also frequently did extensive rehearsals even before they began filming. And if I recall correctly, I don't think that he even did many rehearsals for some of the, um, you know, the scenes and the uh, barracks where they're all gathered together at various times for inspection and that kind of thing. No, I, I don't think there was any rehearsal for that. They, that was something that Ermie had literally done. So he just went and did it. And it, again, he was allowed to improvise more than anyone else that Kubrick ever worked with. Well, it was interesting because I think Kubrick actually did that as much for the other actors' benefits, because if I'm not mistaken, he really wanted to capture the shock that they were displaying from some of the dialogue that Emery was using in those sequences. So that was kind of another thing that was really flew in the face of a lot of what Kubrick had conventionally done. But because the way Emery was playing the character, because it was so true to life, it was just a, a very uh, rousing and disturbing experience for a lot of the actors there gathered. And Kubrick really wanted to capture the raw reactions that they were displaying from hearing this. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's it's fascinating. It was much more effective if they don't know what's going to happen next. And he just unloads on them. And then you see real shock instead of trying to method act and show shock, these guys are really shocked because they're not expecting this dude to be screaming profanity in their face um, the way that he does. Yeah, the and, way fits. I mean, I, I yeah. kind of have speculated, too, that some of the, the violence in those sequences wasn't necessarily simulated either. It, uh, I would believe that. When he hits um, Pyle in the face, I don't necessarily know that he was expecting that um, when he slaps him and even the choke yourself scene which is yeah it's well remembered um i think he honestly doesn't know what the hell are you talking about you know um and he tells him basically to lean forward and let me strangle you and 
I think that there's a lot of sincere emotion there that may not have been scripted. Yeah, that was definitely the sense that I got from those scenes as well. And I, Kubrick did do this occasionally with some of the other actors, but the main two would have been Peter Sellers and Jack Nicholson. I know Sellers especially, he was, I think in several cases, he would just set up like five cameras around Sellers and then just let him improvise on uh, Lolita and maybe a little later on Dr. Strangelove. But yes, Kubrick did not rarely do or did not do this very often. But it's always fascinating to me that uh, for a director who was known so much for his uh, perfectionism and uh, controlling methods that when he recognized an actor's ability to bring something truly unique to the role through improvisations, he was willing to embrace it. Absolutely. Well, let's see. What do you make of this film essentially being two movies in one? What is your take on that? Oh, it completely is. They could almost be two separate films. Um, like one is the boot camp sequence is a could be a prequel to the Vietnam rest of the movie. Um, it's like the first 45 minutes or so. And then suddenly everything changes. And suddenly they're in Vietnam. And we know some of these characters, um, well, a couple of them. We know Joker and we know Cowboy. We don't know everybody else. But the total environment changes drastically. The boot camp environment is utterly controlled. It is super orderly. Um, Vietnam is the fog of war. It's just chaotic. Um, you do see one thing that goes back to what we started talking about, which was the initiatory um, experience and the, the Kairos um, and the Greco-Romans and the other traditional civil, um, societies that if young men survived and became warriors, they were granted a dispensation to do things that wouldn't be acceptable back in society. Um, as long as you're doing them to other people and not to our people, you, you can kind of do whatever you want. And you see that throughout the Vietnam portion of the movie. And it's, it's a real dynamic that you're over there doing it to them you can't come back home and do stuff like gangbang a prostitute or, you know, any number of things, but you can do it over there because we don't care. You're given this freedom to do what you want as long as you're doing it away from us. And when you come back, you're going to be expected to be a normal person. And it's a very, it's a dichotomy. Now, I think it's interesting. One of the more unsettling questions the film kind of subtly raises is what becomes of these men when they return back to civilian life? I mean, is a guy like Animal Mother going to be able to just go and you know, work as a mechanic or something like that when he gets home? Well, and um, Eight Ball directly addresses that and says that Animal Mother is a fine human being. and All he needs is somebody to throw grenades at him for the rest of his life. And you know, that's, that is very much, he's, that guy's going to come home. If he survives, he's going to come home 
with a monstrous case of PTSD and, you know, really struggle to fit into a sane society, whatever we have, you know, a, a less insane society. And yeah, he's not going to be a normal person. None of them are. Um, the door gunner scene is, is truly jarring. And, you know, this is not propaganda for the United States in the sense that the government would never sign off on something that shows Marines committing war crimes and killing innocent people. But, you know, things did happen like that. And, you know, it. how is that guy going to be when he returns home and has to reckon with everything he's done? And everybody in this is going to be dealing with a lot should they survive. Uh, yeah, no, the door gunner scene. And, and for those of you who haven't put it together, the guy who's playing the door gunner, uh, who has the famous line that Matthew Moendini uh, utters to him, you kill women and children too? What is it? Yeah, you just aim a little lower or something like that. Um, you don't lead them as much. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, you don't lead them as much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was actually the guy who was supposed to play Hartman uh, before uh, Emery stepped in. So that was an interesting casting choice there. Yes, yes. And you can see, just be blunt by looking at him, that it would be her, that uh, Ermi would be much better in that role. It'd be almost impossible for this guy to master that, you know, whole affect, um, as well as somebody who actually did it. Uh, one other thing I wanted to touch on here, because I knew this kind of blew you away, but the fact that this entire movie was basically filmed in the UK, I think aside from maybe just a little bit of sex in a second unit photography. But anyway, I'm going to quote from uh, the Stanley Kubrick archives, which was edited by Allison Castle here on page 582 to give a bit of an understanding of where they were shooting here. So it states, uh, filming locations included England's Isle of Dogs and Epping Forest, as well as the Bassingbourne military barracks in Cambridgeshire, which served as the Paris Island boot camp. A second unit shot some footage of military parades uh, superstitiously on location at Paris Island. The film's most impressive location was an abandoned 1930s gas works in Becktown, a town on the Thames that was transformed into the bombed-out city of the Hue. The same location had been used for the film 1984, which came out in 1984, among others. Kubrick told Rolling Stone, we, we worked from still photographies of Hue in 1968, and we found an area that had the same 1930s functionalist architecture. Now, not every bit of it was right, but some of the buildings were absolute carbon copies of the outer industrial areas of Hue. It had been owned by British Gas, and it was scheduled to be demolished, so they allowed us to blow up the building. We had demolition guys there for a week laying charges on Sunday. All the executives from British Gas brought their families down to watch us blow the place up it was spectacular then we had a week then we had a wrecking ball there for two months with the art director telling the operator which hole to knock in the in which building we brought in palm trees from spain and a hundred thousand plastic tropical plants from hong kong if kubrick had had to build sets from the ground up for the scenes of the hue the film would have been 17 the film 17 million dollar budget would have been exceeded several times over 
But yes, fortunately, he got to destroy a refinery, essentially, in the UK to build up the bombed-out city. So yes, I thought that was quite interesting, because you were just uh, saying that it was extremely realistic in those sequences. It was incredibly realistic. Until you and I, I listened to your show and was informed that Kubrick didn't come back to the United States after 68. Um, I had assumed my working assumption had been that he kind of conned the government into letting him actually shoot at a Marine Corps recruit depot because like, for example, the obstacle course is the real obstacle course that they go through in basic training. And like that big ladder, the so-called stairway to heaven, which is a giant ladder made of essentially like telephone poles. And you do have to climb all the way up and then throw your leg over, which feels like you're just going to die. And um, that is that actual, that thing is real. And it, the level of accuracy was incredible to me that the way drill instructors talk that is the way they talk. Um, at least in my time, that's the way they talked. And my senior drill instructor was a slightly built black man. But the way he talked was, minus a few slurs, precisely the way Arlie Ermey talks. And I think there's kind of a life imitating art, imitating life, imitating art type of thing going on there. Because it's almost like a script. And that is how they talk. Those are the actual obstacles they do. Um, it it was fascinating to me. And, and yes, it was mind-blowing to me. That, wait, this isn't actually on site? It's not even in America? That Yeah, I was, I was surprised to learn that. I was stunned. Usually when I watch a movie that has something to do with something I've experienced, I can point out that wouldn't really happen. That wouldn't go like that. That's wrong. That's the wrong whatever. There was none of that in, in the boot camp sequence. It is dead on. And it, it, yeah, it was amazing. And then he could do it in Britain is even more so. Another thing that's really interesting to me about the second half of the movie as well uh, is the nature of the combat that the Marines experience. Because again, uh, the Vietnam movies that have pretty much all come out to this point, including Platoon, typically showed kind of a variation on guerrilla warfare usually it's being fought in royal areas and jungles and things of that nature whereas full metal jacket depicts urban, urban combat almost like what you would have expected out of a world war ii movie or something to that effect and it was actually based on a real battle this did actually happen but it was one of the only major instances of urban combat if i'm not mistaken that unfolded during Vietnam, at least on such a large scale. But it's interesting because it also sort of eerily predicts the direction that combat would be going in uh, for the U.S. Armed Forces in the 1990s. One word, of course, um, I'm thinking of the what was the battle in Black Hawk Down that they depicted? Oh, the um, that happened in Somalia. And it was the one it was the faction the capital city, right? 
Oh yeah, Mogadishu, yes. Yeah, yeah, that's it. The Battle of Mogadishu. Yeah, yeah. So that was, I mean, you know, one of the first major combat sites that the United States had been involved in in the aftermath of the Cold War. It was a big amount of urban combat there. Again, we saw that again in um the second Gulf War with uh was it Fluji? I think that was the city where they had the Marines fighting in. So it's yeah, Fallujah. Yeah. Fallujah. Yeah. There's there's actually really some kind of eerie parallels, I think, with Fallujah and what you see depicted in Full Metal Jacket. But oh yes. Thoughts on that in the use of urban combat in this film? Oh yes. Um well, uh I can so some of the statements that the Marines make in Full Metal Jacket were dying for them and they don't appreciate it. Could I'm th- I think eight ball says that. Um these people don't appreciate that we're here risking our lives for them could be taken directly from people that served in Afghanistan or Iraq um, and in Somalia. Um, Urban combat, you know, I was in Somalia and it can be terrifying. Um, At points, you know, everything's just chaotic and going to hell. And even if you're in the alleged safe zone, you're completely surrounded and it's, it can be really bad. Um, but yes, we don't fight wars on like battlefields anymore. Um, I think the last time we did that was probably Korea. Um, the complaints of troops in Vietnam was that, we don't know who the enemy is. And that's been the case in every military action since. Everything ends up being a repeat of Vietnam, that we don't know who the enemy is. It's This is not World War II. We're not gonna, we don't have front lines and the rear. In today's modern warfare, there is no rear. There's no safe place to be. And that, you know, this very well depicts that, that you can be killed just anywhere. And that is, and whenever you're fighting, you're trying to, or at least should be trying to only kill the enemy and not kill, kill the people who are trying to kill you and not random people who just happen to live there. But that is so much easier said than done. And this is, yeah, it's definitely a precursor to every military action we've taken since. What do you see as being the significance of the uh, legendary Miso Horny scene? Wow, yeah. Um, for, <laughs> and it is. It's a really important... Brief, it's brief, and there's no actual sex. There is no sex depicted in this movie. But it's alluded to a, a great deal. But um, it shows several things. Um, one, you're not exactly winning hearts and minds by the way you're acting um, towards the people that live there. Um, it shows, you know, a level of misogyny that was just, you know, par for the course. Um, and it showed an attitude of, we are better than these people. We're here to save them, whether they want to be saved or not. And in the meantime, yes, sure, we'll, use their desperation to pay for $5 for sex. Yes. Yeah. We'll do that. And that that was allowed to go on, you know, 
was a never-ending source of, of problems. Um, if you are trying to win hearts and minds, that's not how you do it. Also, it's, I mean, it's tremendously offensive, you know, um, and plays to so many Asian female stereotypes. And it can't be missed that it was later sampled and used by two live crew in a song by that name in the eighties. Um, that, you know, it's that song. Yes. Um, the sample that comes from full metal jacket. Um, and the subtext you might say is that the whole thing is a setup so they can so some probably VC agents can steal the photographer's camera, which they do, and get away. And they were undoubtedly working with the woman that appears to be a prostitute. But as the Joker character points out, most of the prostitutes are VC officers. Now, I wouldn't, I don't think that was literally true, but there's certainly that did happen. You know, so it's it's it says a lot. And the way that Joker, who's a nominally good guy, casually uses a racial slur and the term whore right in front of the person he's talking about, uh tells you something about the utter lack of empathy or, you know, we're there as unwanted occupiers. And that's never a good situation. And it's something that has been had to be managed in every conflict since that you want the people there to like you and that's a very difficult thing to accomplish, if not impossible thing to accomplish. So yeah, it, it reflected a lot of realities.
it's kind of interesting too how it plays into elements of psychological warfare that are depicted in the film of course as we had mentioned before joker um becomes a member of stars and stripes there is that sequence where they are in i guess it's like the editor's room the writer's room or whatever discussing articles and joker is lectured by his ceo over the types of stories they do which are basically uh, on the one hand stories of marines going out and killing insurgents and then on the other hand of marines winning hearts and minds by handing out you know lollipops or something like that and you almost because the reality of this is just so far detached from what's actually going on in the field, which is something that Joker kind of subtly hints at when they have that debate where he's, you know, asked if he saw any casualties from this shooting spree that the Marines went on. He kept saying that there were no bodies and they want him to change the story and make it seem like um, an officer had been killed or something to that effect. But yeah, I mean, it's just you almost step away from that scene wondering who is this propaganda really intended for? I mean, surely it doesn't even seem like that this would be something that would be useful to win over the hearts and minds of the Vietnamese people. It's almost propaganda intended internally for the Marine Corps to sort of rationalize and gloss over their actions there, if you will. Oh, absolutely. Um, no, I don't think any Vietnamese people were re virtually any were reading the Stars and Stripes. It's for internal consumption and to tell the folks back home that no everything's fine it's fine and it's also interesting that that's a classic scene and joker brings up that a lot of the troops are talking about there's going to be a big attack around the tet um vietnamese new year which of course happens you know the next, days later and he's completely brushed off because the troops don't know anything. Uh, the people who are actually on the ground don't know anything. Intelligence is telling us nothing's going to happen. So obviously nothing's going to happen. And like days later, all hell's breaking loose and the whole Battle of Hue is going on. Which is part of the, the larger Tet Offensive. Yeah, no, it's that's another kind of nice little touch by Kubrick is how oblivious the uh, commanding officers appear. Of course, there's also the sequence where Joker is accosted by that colonel uh, for having the peace sign on his helmet. Uh, at that one point when they're looking over those bodies that have been buried in the mass grave. And again, he's just sort of fixating over more than anything how the war is being uh, presented to the american public by mainstream news publications and how their big concern is they have to counterbalance the narrative that's coming out or something to that effect yes yes well that scene too starts off with uh the colonel saying all i have ever asked of my men is to obey my orders the way they would god almighty it's like, yeah that's all <laughs> <laughs> His perspective is is quite interesting. Um, and yes, he's mad about the peace sign and he's preoccupied with how is this being perceived back home. And Joker talks about the duality of man and brings up Carl Jung. And I'm like, wow, okay. <laughs> that's that's an interesting little aside in a movie where you wouldn't expect that to come up. 
you want to get in more on the duality of man that's it's also interesting too when you mention that that it totally goes over the uh colonel's head when he mentions young as well yes oh yes um joker seems to be a very educated person and he he's in a very interesting because he not only survives the boot camp experience but excels he's made a squad leader and he's given the plum assignment of helping uh pile get through which he does almost but um he manages to go through all that and is still basically himself he's you know trained and toughened up but he's still basically the same person that he was when he came in and was mimicking john wayne on day one and then he's over in vietnam mimicking john wayne and just being this you know kind of sarcastic distancing himself from what everybody else is doing and kind of kind of a nonconformist, kind of you know an unexpectedly free thinker and by the end he has become the kind of killer that they had wanted him to be at the beginning even though without you know again the spoilers it's from 1987 he does a what you could call a mercy killing, but he does take out a pistol and shoot the VC sniper in the head. And immediately people congratulate him, but his tone changes after that. And it's like, he has really become the hardened killer that they wanted him to be. That's a, a very interesting journey. I, I totally agree. I to me, I've always seen the Joker character as a sort of representation of the intellectual struggle against cultural programming, if you will. Uh, because as you're saying, Joker's obviously a very well-read individual. He's familiar with Young, probably a lot of other philosophical concepts. And this puts him in a position where he is, in many cases, able to step back and view the events that are unfolding before him in a more intellectually honest way than many of those around him. So you get the sense that he is an odd fit for the Marine Corps, but then conversely, he's always struggling, I believe, throughout the film, through the cultural programming that he's going through, i.e. with the references to John Wayne and the sort of image of uh you know the rugged american male that prevailed during that era going into boot camp with a lot of the cultural that was implanted upon them when they went through that experience and even then up throughout the sequences in vietnam it seems like he is still chafing in that with the use of the peace symbol on his helmet next to uh the born to kill uh declaration which is also what he was getting at with the duality of man line when uh the colonel asked him why he had the peace sign on his helmet but anyway he's struggling with this throughout the film as you're saying at the end it's kind of a watershed moment where he i think ultimately gives in to the cultural programming by killing the woman yes i definitely got the same um he and i couldn't be struck by help be struck but be struck by 
one huge difference between the military in Vietnam and the military since is the draft. And Joker probably, I don't know, they never go into any of that. But a lot of people got drafted and were just told, show up at this location because you're going into the Marines. And that's very, very different than how things are today with an all-volunteer force where you have, they have to do a lot more recruiting and a lot more, a lot more cultural programming to get young men and women to voluntarily sign on for this. And that's, that's a huge, huge difference. Another thing that really struck me in recent viewing as well was that line, the Joker utters at uh, around the end of the boot camp sequence i can't remember the exact wording but it was something to the effect that the core does not want robots it wants killers and that seemed especially relevant at the end of the movie because you can see how the training that these men went through did enable them to become killers rather than robots which is sort of the irony of the the colonel's uh line about how he wants his uh troops to obey his commands that they came down from god themselves but i was thinking in general it's very interesting how as you kind of did alluded to before as the film progresses uh the natural order of the marine corps breaks down uh the further into the thick of combat they get you know whereas eventually it's in the initial stages it's essentially iron tight and boot camp with uh, until really the very end when pile has his mental breakdown but then once you get into vietnam uh, the men seem to become more and more detached from their authorities the further from the back lines that they become and in the last 30 minutes or so of the film, the uh, CEO of the squad that Joker is with is killed. Cowboy ends up taking over command of the squad, and he makes the decision to try and pull the squad out of uh, the predicament they've been. Uh, again, for those of you not watching, this is a little spoilery, but they're uh, clearing out the city. Uh, they've sent a few guys ahead. They've been ambushed by a sniper where they can't see where it's coming from. And after contemplating the situation, Cowboy wants to withdraw the uh, squadron and wait until the tanks can show up to clear out the area because he's concerned that they could be walking into a further ambush besides just a lone sniper there. And Animal Mother disregards his command, rushes on into the area where the wounded Marines are, begins a firefight with the snipers, able to locate where she is placed even though he's not able to uh, save his mates which is the rationalization for this but again you kind of get the sense that he doesn't even really care that the marines there are wounded he's just doing this because he wants to engage in the combat with the sniper but this leads to the fateful decision that cowboy makes to advance with several of the troops it ends up costing him his life as he is later taken out by the sniper. And I think maybe one or two of the other Marines are wounded, if I'm not mistaken, as well. But yeah, I was really struck by this scene because Cowboy effectively did make, I think, the right command decision. Uh, but then um, the command structure breaks down, which leads to further deaths and so forth. So it's almost, I think, a reflection on how 
the Marine Corps has done such a good job to turn these men into killers that the discipline that's necessary to an effective military force has almost been totally eroded by it in the heat of conflict they're following their killer instincts instead of the orders of their supervisors even though uh the commands in this case were probably the right ones and would have potentially saved lives yes um i mean robots would have retreated when told to um animal mother is a true killer but i had a very different take on that particular scene because I didn't think that he just wanted to shoot the sniper for the sake of shooting the sniper. I was struck by, I mean, throughout the film, Animal Mother says some incredibly racist shit and like really over the top races. And Eight Ball, who's the guy that the first guy to get shot, um, who is a black man, um, you know, takes him completely in stride and just it shows. To me, and we're going back to the initiation and that whether he even really means those racist things, he certainly says them. And whether he's just playing around, joking around, he says some really terrible things. But when something happens to 8-Ball, he's totally willing to risk his own life to go and try to save him. And I, to me, that was very touching. I, It showed the, the brotherhood that they felt for each other. Um, it, I, I was really struck by that scene. And yes, he does want revenge. He definitely wants to kill the sniper, but he also really, you know, cares about his friend, and you know, is willing to throw away his own life and disobey orders to try. I mean, I, I thought it was sincere that he was going to try to save him, but uh, you know, it doesn't work out at all. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I guess I should say it's more the aftermath when they've realized that the two uh, Marines are dead and he wants to keep advancing on. Because at that point, it's like really the, you know, the reason for risking additional lives has been lost. I mean, you're just basically going out here to seek revenge. And even then, it doesn't really, you know, because again, at this point in time, they only know that there's one sniper there. It's like you're going to risk the lives of an entire squadron to kill one single freaking sniper. I mean, come on, that's... that's yes, you know, beyond that military point, sense. It, it is, it, no, it doesn't. Um, I, even watching it, was thinking, why don't they call in an airstrike? But um, that's neither here nor there. But yeah, it, that after that, it's emotional. And it's, he wants to just get this person at all costs, even his own life. And, you know, it, it is, it's, it's killer instinct after that. And not good military decision-making. No. Yeah, no, it's interesting how you see in the film as the chain of command breaks down and how it really uh, leads to a lot of poor decisions being made in the field. Well, I mean, even up to that point, too, part of the reason why they ended up in that mess in the first place is because they had gotten lost, I believe, after Cowboy had taken command. Yes, yes. Fog of war type thing. Yeah. Total confusion. Trying to do that stuff with no GPS and none of the technology we have today. They're literally map encompassing it. And wow, that would be that'd be a very difficult thing. All right. As we get into the home stretch here, let's get into the philosophy on display in the film. What, in your estimation, is the ultimate message of the film, both avert and convert? Is it truly in any war movie? <laughs> and I'm going to waffle a little bit, but 
um, because Kubrick is enigmatic. Um, it has a lot to say. Um, I think it is critical of a lot of American foreign policy. It shows us throwing our power around. I mean, us as a country throwing our power around there. He's very upfront that the way the military is treating Vietnamese civilians and even Vietnamese soldier and you know, the enemy soldiers um, is just so derogatory and so it's like designed to make them hate us. And we're here supposedly to save them. And that's kind of been a blueprint for things that have happened since then. Um, it's always the ongoing problem. The, you know, trying to fight a war and have the people support us rather than despise us and just want us to leave. Um, I mean, the way that the Marines act towards the Vietnamese in this movie, I mean, you think of Abu Ghraib and the stuff that happened there. And a lot of those people that were at Abu Ghraib were not hardened terrorists. They were like shepherds. They were random people that were just picked up and then went through you know, some really terrible treatment. And that radicalizes people way more effectively than the enemy does. Um, sometimes we have been our own worst enemy in every conflict we've been in since Vietnam. And I think he, he really means that part. Um, that he is critical of American foreign policy. At the same time, that's my take sitting here in my 50s, you know, uh, this has a cult following in the Marines. Um, and if you're a teenager watching this, you're seeing something very different. And it can be taken both ways. It can be taken as a recruiting film. Um, it, and I know that sounds crazy, but... At the time, if you don't have life experience, you know, it it can definitely be taken as that in the, the you know, same way as Top Gun or something like that. Or I'm thinking of the Clint Eastwood one, uh, Heartbreak Ridge, um, which came out around the same time. And it can show that being in the military is being in an action movie, basically. And that you can do this and you can be this action hero. And that does kind of make it a recruiting film, um, which is a strange dichotomy. And K Kubrick always has a ton of nuance in everything he does. So I don't know what his intentions were. He certainly shows a lot of really horrible sides of war, but it's also really fascinating. And I think there is a, hero's journey type of thing with the boot camp portion. I've never fully understood what he, why Pyle kills Hartman and himself, not when he's really fucking with him, but when, um, after he's already won, he succeeded. 
Hertmans congratulated him and, you know, told him, yeah, you made it. Um, why does he go off then? Has ne never made sense to me. And I, you know, I just, it hasn't. But you notice, and yeah, they show him kind of losing it at some point. But you also see him change his affect from being this kind of goofy, you know, very naive kid into he has a very different demeanor towards, you know, the end. And he'd started out failing everything. And towards the end, he's able to do everything. And there's kind of a, you know, and then Hartman's speech where he's, he says, you know, you are no longer maggots. Today you are Marines and every Marine is your brother. And I mean, that's, that's really, you know, that is an initiation experience. And he is now, he's succeeded. He's become part of that brotherhood. And then he completely goes nuts. I, I've never really understood that one. But it is, to me, definitely a commentary on the, the need that a lot of young people have for an initiatory experience. That we have so few in our society line of demarcation between you're a kid and now you're an adult. That is something that people struggle with. And I, I think that he definitely is commenting on that in a way. Um, as far as the political implications, I think that he sincerely has a lot of problems with American foreign policy and makes those clear that, you know, we're, it's not good for us. It's not good for the people we're trying to help. We've got to do things differently, which we have done some things somewhat better, but generally no. Um, but yes, he also shows it in a way that can make that very attractive to a person of a certain age. So there, I've firmly taken both sides. No, it's totally understandable. And I, I think to some extent, it might even be a bit of a reflection on the dichotomy of Kubrick himself. Because on the one hand, I do believe that he was also quite critical of U.S. foreign policy for much of his life. But conversely, it's well known that he was really a major military history buff. Uh, in fact, he was also known regularly for wearing uh, combat fatigues and so forth when he was on the set. Of course, he invested years into researching the life of Napoleon and uh, the military culture around him. But not just that, but in various other eras. So I do think that Kubrick was genuinely fascinated by military culture and the camaraderie that men who are part of military culture developed uh, amongst themselves. And possibly, as you've been discussing, it might even have been because he recognized similarities to it and the initiatory experiences that men would have gone through in more traditional societies. But yes, I do think that that's a valid point, because on the one hand, while Kubrick is, I think, rather disturbed by U.S. foreign policy during the Vietnam era, he's also conversely quite captivated by the camaraderie that the men share in these situations and the brotherhood and that kind of thing, which I think does shine through in the film. Yes. Um, there was, and this is maybe off uh, sidetrack a little bit, but there was the scene 
at the rifle range, which really is has always been striking to me, that um, Hartman brings up um, the University of Texas mass shooting, and then brings up the JFK assassination. Yeah, Lee Harvey Oswald. No, I've wondered about That's... that too. I thought that was quite interesting that when Hartman was trying to uh discuss like the uh the prowess of marine riflemen he brings up whitman and lee harvey oswald as examples of that yes yeah so it's mind-blowing to me that um any any one of you will be capable of doing the same it's like uh okay and what are you saying and i know that you know say um, like both men are evidence of like what one motivated marine and his rifle can accomplish and he's basically almost saying that like it's a good thing or something yes absolutely and i know that um kubrick was involved in a lot of deep political stuff causing him to leave the united states after the robert kennedy assassination and never come back and that made me wonder what what he was, you know, inserting there, you know? Yeah, it is a rather random kind of scene in there, at least in terms of the dialogue, where it's a bit surprising, as I was alluding to, that he would bring up those two characters in particular. But it kind of gets into what we were discussing earlier as to what becomes of these men when they come back from Vietnam or wherever they've been fighting, you know, what uh, purpose are they going to be put towards? So who knows, perhaps that is a rather dark uh, implication as to what that might be. Yes, that that would make, make a lot of sense. Um, and people to sidetrack again, just a little bit. Uh, this is right around the time the Rambo movies are coming out and in the first movie, Rambo isn't this action hero, really. He's completely having a mental breakdown. And he doesn't go after enemies of America. He goes after a small-town sheriff's department and, you know, who pick him up as being a vagrant and has this entire, like, just shooting spree. I don't necessarily think that movie would be made today. The, the first blood, the original one, um, because too many things have happened, you know. Well, one other thing here I wanted to uh, briefly get into was the way that violence is depicted in this film and some of Kubrick's other uh, movies and specifically one specific type of violence that I believe that he was uh, targeting here. And it's only really evident uh in the final scene actually of full metal jacket it's a scene that's really puzzled a lot of people and that's when uh the marines are marching back from the urban combat scene and you have joker doing the voiceover narration where he's essentially talking about how he's embraced his killer inside and that kind of thing but what's really odd about this sequence is uh, the marines are singing the theme song from uh, the Mickey Mouse Club TV show that was really big back in that era as well. So a lot of people wondered why, of all things, they would be singing the Mickey Mouse theme song. And I think that uh, there is a really bit of very daft social commentary being done by Kubrick there. Oh, yes. Yes. So, I, 
Well, let me uh, go through with this here. So I wanted to get into an interview first that Kubrick did. I think this would have been 71, 72, around the time that Clockwork Orange came out. The interview was called Modern Times, an interview with Stanley Kubrick by Philip Strick and Penelope Houston. And I'm reading this in the Stanley Kubrick archive, which I had noted before was uh, edited by Allison Castle, because I think it, it provides a really interesting insight for what I'm about to get into here. But uh, so the question is, quote, is there any kind of violence in films which you might regard as socially dangerous? And this is Kubrick's response, quote, well, I don't accept that there is a connection, but let us hypothetically say that there might be one. If there were one, I should say that the kind of violence that might cause some impulse to emulate it is the fun kind of violence, the kind of violence we see in the Bond films or the Tom and Jerry cartoons. Unrealistic violence, sanitized violence, violence presented as a joke. This is the only kind of violence that could conceivably cause anyone to wish to copy it, but I'm quite convinced that not even this has any effect. There may even be an argument in support of saying that any kind of violence in films in fact, serves a useful social purpose by allowing people a means of uh, vicariously freeing themselves from the pent-up aggressive emotions which are better expressed in dreams or in the dreamlike state of watching a film than in form of reality or sublimation. Now, it's interesting that he says this during the time that A Clockwork Orange comes out, because in my opinion... The violence in Clockwork Orange has always been perceived as quite shocking to people in a lot of ways that continues to this day. And certainly I believe the reaction to the violence in the film is generally much stronger than most people's responses to films from the same era, such as uh, Straw Dogs or uh, maybe The Last House on the Left that came out uh, about a year or so afterwards, if you will. So... Why is the violence in A Clockwork Orange so unsettling, even though in some cases these other movies are more graphic? In my opinion, it's because Kubrick stages the violence in A Clockwork Orange like it is a cartoon, quite literally. I mean, if you go back and watch this, I mean, with the way that the Alex, some of the Droogs and, you know, their rivals, I mean, some of the shots that they take, I mean, they would probably be dead or unconscious in real life but they basically they just jump right up i mean i'm kind of thinking specifically of the battle that alex has with the rival gang headed by billy boy uh i mean that whole sequence is really just so improbable and it only makes sense if you're viewing it in the context of a cartoon or a kind of keystone cops type uh, slapstick if you will and that's really interesting because cartoons are also alluded to uh, quite extensively in Full Metal Jacket, not just with the last scene, but for instance, when you see the writer's room in Vietnam where Joker is discussing um, the articles with his CEO, there's, I think Snoopy is in the background at one point. I think in another case, you see Mickey Mouse, a few other things like that. And then, of course, as we talked about before, Joker's whole nickname, the possibility that this is coming from the Batman cartoons and this type of stuff. I think... And, that... and if I just might add, uh, Arlie Ermey's, like, next-to-last line, it, he walks into the, to the latrine and he says, 
Oh, what is Mickey this Mickey Mouse, Mouse shit that sticks out? Yeah. Yeah, no, that was a good one. I had totally forgot about that. But yes, they asked the reference to Mickey Mouse there right before he gets shot. So what I think Kubrick is reflecting on in this, as well as A Clockwork Orange, is the effects that violence in cartoons have as a part of our conditioning, which is something that we almost never really discuss. But if you go back and look at a lot of the older cartoons, like the Bugs Bunny or the earlier Disney ones, it's rather unsettling. I mean, for one thing, people with disabilities, either mentally or physically, are usually depicted in quite an unflattering light. You know, look at a character like Elmer Fudd or something like that. And then conversely, in so many cartoons, you see the sort of alpha male hero who's paired with this kind of dumpy sidekick who's, let's just say, maybe a little mentally slow or not the best looking. And he's constant. The sidekick is constantly being slapped around and what have you by the main character. It's just it's really on the one hand, I think, pushes a certain desensitization to violence among kids. And then on the other hand, it almost advocates this sort of abusive nature towards people in society that do have handicaps or are obese or just not, you know, that good looking for whatever reason, or certainly mental problems and other things of that nature. So kind of getting back to what I was saying with Joker's sort of personal struggle through programming, cultural programming, I think that that is sort of at the root of it, this sort of desensitized process that we go through with cartoons as kids. And I think that this is one of the reasons why cartoons linger heavy over the actions that happen in Full Metal Jacket and why at the very end you see the Marines singing the Mickey Mouse theme song. It's almost a, a kind of return to first principles, if you will, for Joker after he has, you know, been born again, essentially, as this killer. And there's now this almost echo of where this process began in childhood, not just for him, but for the other men that are in the squadron and so forth. So I thought that that was really daft as well. And then further, um, this Cooper could also mention like the James Bond movies. I think that you could certainly see the violence uh, spiritually continuing in an elevated level uh, with the you know the second Rambo movie or the missing in action movies or just in general that whole culture of action films in the 80s and you know what I'm talking about oh, yes. and films and stuff like that I mean pretty much all of that was just a thinly veiled uh, propaganda for the Reagan war machine so I do think that this is one of the more interesting things about Full Metal Jacket is the subtle criticism that Kubrick has of violence in movies uh, and in cartoons when it's done in this very unserious and unrealistic fashion, how that it can desensitize people to the actual horrors of real violence uh, when they happen in real life. And it's kind of like the subtle thing about Full Metal Jacket, because, yeah, it's a movie, especially when you see it at a younger age, a lot of this flies over your head, but when you go back and rewatch it when you're a little older, uh, as the position that we're in, it's really quite unsettling, I think, because of those characteristics to it, in much the same way that The Clockwork Orange is, uh, because the stuff that's being shown in this film is given it sometimes that kind of glossy 80s action feel to it, even though... 
you know, when you step back and look at even stuff like the miso horny sequences, the way that just in general, the women, the Vietnamese women are depicted in the movie, it's really quite disturbing. Absolutely. Um, you know, there's a lot of cartoons that they won't show anymore from both Warner Brothers and uh, Disney because, man, there's some stuff that I remember watching as a kid that has gross racial stereotypes that has cartoony violence that yeah is just completely unrealistic but is really violent and enforces all kinds of stereotypes and yeah there's a lot of things they won't show anymore um but they did show them for many years and the action movie thing is still going on to this day and my feeling is kind of similar to Kubrick. You want to show violence, well then show real violence the way it really looks. Don't have a wise cracking detective who shoots bad guy bullets that can only hit bad guys and so can just fire into the crowd. I'm thinking of uh, not to pick any specific one because there's a hundred of them, but the, the, the Will Smith um, bad boy is the first one where they're driving down the freeway and Martin Lawrence is shooting at the bad guys, but it's a crowded freeway in Miami. I mean, you couldn't possibly fire a gun into passing cars and only hit the bad guys, but they're doing it and then like making jokes and shit. And it just don't do that kind of violence that that's not real violence. And that does, I feel desensitize people to actual violence, you know, which isn't cool and, you know, funny, you know? Yeah. I, I concur. Yeah, I mean, it's almost curious because you are left with the sense of just how much of the desensitization the troops are displaying when they're in Vietnam is a result of their training and how much of it is a product of the culture that they were brought up in. Because as I'd sort of you know, talked about before, all of the soldiers are very aware of American pop culture, and especially when uh, you know they have the stars and stripes of the other media people around them, they're essentially consciously acting out roles uh, based on what they've seen in American films and so forth. But yeah, just in general, when you look at the way that, you know, Joker just randomly goes into the John Wayne impersonations, the the specters of cartoons throughout it, the, some of the nicknames that the Hartman character is handing out, like Gomer Pyle, it all seems to uh, reflect on the role that American culture played in the very militaristic nature that developed during the cold war absolutely yeah it, they don't arrive in boot camp as a blank slate they arrive having spent their entire youth being being programmed and that hurtman just has to take them the other half of the way yeah yeah that's a good way of putting it uh well, Vince, it has been a fascinating discussion. Did you have any uh, closing thoughts here before we sign off? Let's see. Um, I guess I just wanted to work this one um, saying into this conversation, and it's not a inter-service -rival, inter rivalry thing at all. I mean this rather lightheartedly, but there is a relevance to it. There's a saying in the military that there are only two branches of the U.S. military, the Army and the Navy. The Air Force is a corporation, and the Marine Corps is a cult. 
And you see that very clearly here. And, you know, I don't mean that in a bad way, but there's some truth to that. There is some truth to that. Well, Pulitz, and I definitely think that Kubrick maybe came to that conclusion as well uh, while he was shooting the film. One final point that I wanted to make before we sign off here is what I believe are the parallels Kubrick is drawing between the Joker character played by Matthew Mondini, as we've uh, mentioned before, and the real-life figure of Daniel Ellsberg. Uh, so as to why I believe this, a uh, if you go back and look at the film at the onset before Moendini has his uh, hair shaved off, he looks uncannily like Daniel Ellsberg did during the late 60s, or especially the early 1970s, I should say, even down to uh, the particular glasses that he's wearing. On top of that, Ellsberg was also a Marine though this uh, was prior to him going to Vietnam. Ellsberg's tour in the Marines, I believe, was between uh, 1954 and 1955. And it was seen as an unusual uh, path for him to take. By this point in time, I believe he had already uh, almost reached his graduate degree at Harvard University, if I remember correctly. But he had, um, he had gone to Ivy League schools. He was quite an intelligent man. And it was a bit surprising to a lot of people close to him back then that he would decide to uh, do, I believe, two years in the Marine Corps before finishing up his degree. Uh, we are left to assume, as Vincent had alluded to earlier, that the Joker character in Full Metal Jacket is a highly intelligent individual who came uh, from more of a working class background and thus faced the draft. But Again, this is left ambiguous in the film, at least. There's certainly a possibility that he could have been following a similar trajectory in his life that Daniel Ellsberg was. And I think that Kubrick may have left this uh, deliberately ambiguous to make it uh, possible for the viewer to reach this conclusion. And of course, as I have mentioned before, Ellsberg ended up serving in Vietnam. Uh, he was there as I believe a civilian uh, asset working under good old General Edward Lansdale, one of the major architects of the United States' use of psychological warfare during the Cold War era. Ellsberg uh, was not involved in the Phoenix program, why he was in Vietnam, but he did work on programs related to it, and in general, this all would have fallen under the rubrics of civil action or civic action, uh, which deals with everything from these sort of terror tactics that were used by the Phoenix program to more conventional types of psychological warfare as part of a broader counterinsurgency effort. So it's interesting that Moendini character, again, is effectively working as a psychological warfare officer in his capacity at Stars and Stripes. This is not, you know, especially close to what Elber, Ellsberg was doing in Vietnam, but it was certainly it's distinct from doing a conventional uh, combat related task as most Marines were. So I think that on the whole, there was a real possibility that Kubrick intended for this, the Joker character to be a bit of a commentary on Daniel Ellsberg 
And it's especially interesting in context with the Joker character parroting a lot of these uh, peace slogans and so forth. Of course, he's famously got the peace sign on his helmet uh, below the good old born to kill uh, proclamation, which I believe is quite fitting. Uh, Ellsberg is a figure that I dealt with quite a bit in my most recent book, The Art, uh, along with Edward Lansdale. And one of the contentions that I make in the book is that a big part of Ellsberg's work after he returned from Vietnam was co-opting the American left and pushing it in a direction that was advantageous to, say, maybe people connected to his former mentor, um, a guy that he continued to greatly admire throughout his life, Edward Lansdale, and their political enemies. That is to say, utilizing the left against them. So that is an interesting context as well as to how the Joker character is presented in Full Metal Jacket. And I suppose in a sense, as we've been talking about before, what are these guys going to do when they get home? Well, I'd see Joker really making a compelling informant or something to that effect uh, in the new left circles. When he got home, certainly he is intelligent enough and arguably he's already started to get a little of a bit of an image in that capacity with his curious um, slogans and so forth that he embraces or symbols I should say that he embraces in the film so yeah I think that that is potentially also another layer to this and also possibly a reflection on maybe the more broader peace movement how much it had been co-opted even back then by the military and the intelligence services of course you see a lot of the troops in full metal jacket parroting um you know pretty conventional anti-war slogans of the time even when you get the sense that they may not necessarily totally buy into any of that per se uh not unlike how they don't seem to be buying into the pro-war sentiment uh, essentially they're individuals in a survival mode who are repeating slogans that they've heard as a way to try to bring sense to their actions so who knows maybe that uh or a fair amount of the individuals who are later put into uh, the war movement as plan or anti-war movement as plans upon returning home as they oftentimes found themselves in equally precarious situations trying to reintegrate back into society so again as we talked about before but anyway, there's a lot to all of this. And again, I think that it's another angle that next time when you go back and watch this movie, keep it in mind. Well, on that note, we will sign off for now. As always, I want to thank you guys so much for listening and your support. And with that, as always, good night and good luck to you all. Baby, pick me up out here in my wiki.
Tuck down in the stick, hut is hot as hell I tell you what, put it up and knock it down Moving on that big around, come on mama jump down Turn around, do it for me, stick it out Say one, two, three, Geronimo, jump baby we gotta go Hands tied, blindfold, jump into that battle zone I said it's time to get the fuck out Cause they done let the wolves out Coming with that heat, mama shooting up the street Mama fight or fight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama no retreat, mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street, tell me that you good for it You want peace, go to war for it Say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump baby, we gotta go Screaming with me, scream Geronimo Can't patrol it off from Berlin to the Great Wall The greatest walls are bound to fall So legalize it, Vato About a Genghis Chapo Come on, legalize it No need to advertise it The weed cures the cancer Everybody even caught or realized If a farmer don't make cash money When we rock that stash, honey Best believe they sooner take it out your ass, Sunday. Civilization, what? 